0: This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Chair number 106, September the 20th, 1985. I have a number of rather interesting and delightful things to share with you, but first of all to get out of the way something that uh, I found irritating. The... September 9, 1985, Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, on page 3, has an article about the Archbishop of Canterbury who, in Anaheim, California, before a crowd of 10,000, denounced, we are told, the centuries-old Christian missionary practice of imposing Western culture on converts in Asian and African countries. And he said, we have now come to recognize the insensitivity of much of the 19th century missionary movement with its disregard of ancient African and Asian ways of life, Runcie said. Now, this is garbage. First of all, when missionaries go abroad, there's a great deal in Western culture that is bad. Uh, certainly, uh, <laughs> From his own country, and he's very loud in denouncing the United States, the Beatles, Hard Rock, and much more that England has given to the world are certainly not representative of our culture, our civilization, in any healthy sense. But secondly, the missionaries have never taken this garbage over with them. What they do take over are the fruits of, depending on the country in Europe, 9 to 20 centuries of Christianity, its impact on the world of thought and of science, so that they are not taking over something that is parochial or uh, nationalistic. They are taking over the results of Christian civilization the idea that they are propagating something that is, say, English or Germanic, is rubbish. If you go back to what those countries and others were prior to Christ, prior to their conversion, you find that the English were running around naked at the time of our Lord, or the people who lived in England at that time, and were barbarians. In Germany, although you had Roman writers who idealized the Germans and made them into noble savages in order to clobber uh, the peoples of Italy, the reality, as we have it from a number of sources, indicates that they, too, were savages. In fact, as late as... Charlemagne's time, centuries later, his big problem with the Saxons was their practice of human sacrifice. They had a great many customs and traditions that were purely evil. Now, Western civilization has been Christian civilization, which has both in Asia and Africa and the Americas and in Europe continued to wage war against every form of paganism. So, Runcie, who does not believe much, doesn't know much either. That kind of talk irritates me. Well, now on to something else by uh, another Englishman, and a very fine one, Frederick A. Philby, a scientist, who wrote a few years ago The book, I believe, is out of print. It was published in 1970. The Flood Reconsidered. As a Christian in the sciences, he writes very ably and effectively. Now, there are some points where I would disagree with him, particularly in his view of a limited flood, not a worldwide one although he gives enough evidence for the worldwide extent of the flood. However, uh, just some minor points to uh, give you the flavor of the book. He calls attention to the fact that at the time of the flood, the waters indeed had a very dramatic effect on the whole world. And the weather since then, as the weather has receded northward and the ice has apparently moved northward, has greatly changed. He says, and I quote, Since then, great areas of the earth have been steadily losing their supply of water. Palmyra, which once housed a hundred thousand inhabitants, has no longer a sufficient supply for a thousand The once-busy trade route from Persia to Petra has long since been abandoned for lack of water. Evidently, large areas which received a copious supply of water some thousands of years ago have not since then obtained sufficient to maintain their store. Palmyra was a capital city whose queen, Zenobia, is famous as having been one of the most effective fighters against the power of Rome. Then this is an interesting uh, bit of evidence against those who deny the worldwide extent of the flood and who say, for example, that the supposedly ancient volcanoes of France um, have ashes still uh, existing on the surface which a flood would have covered. And uh, Philby says, and I quote, Finally, it used to be argued that no such flood could have reached France, despite the evidence of Saint-Tenis, sur Meuse and other places, because, so it was alleged, the volcanoes of the Auvergne are tertiary volcanoes, and the ashes they have thrown up are still unmoved after millions of years. Unfortunately for this argument, there are old French records that the Auvergne volcanoes, far from dying out millions of years ago, underwent violent eruptions in the years A.D. 458 to 60, unquote. Then, uh, this is an interesting bit of evidence on Noah and Noah's Ark, from China. Uh, Dr. Philby calls attention to the fact that the Chinese symbols for a large ship are the two symbols, eight and mouths or persons. And of course, Noah and his family, sons and their wives, numbered eight. Then, uh, This too, and there are some excellent books written on this subject of the ancient engineers. Philby says to those who uh, question whether anyone like Noah could have ever built so great a ship, which, by the way, reflected an advanced knowledge of shipbuilding the ratios uh, of the ship are important in establishing stability and controlling pitching and rolling. It's the kind of thing that you did not have until the modern age. At any rate, he says, just reading a part of what he says with regard to the ancient engineers, I quote, Yet even granting that all this some may feel, that the ark was too large for early man to have attempted, A survey of the ancient world shows, in fact, the very reverse. One is constantly amazed at the enormous tasks which our ancestors attempted. The Great Pyramid was not the work of the later pharaohs. It was the work of the Fourth Dynasty, long before Abraham. This pyramid contained over two million blocks of stone, each weighing about two and a half tons. Its vast sides, 756 feet long, are set to the points of the compass to an accuracy of a small fraction of one degree. The so-called colossi of Memnon, again, are not of recent origin. They belong to the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Cut from blocks of sandstone, they weigh 400 tons each and were brought 600 miles to their present position. Among the remains of that most ancient empire in Greece, Mycenae, is the treasury of Atreus. Above its entrance rests a huge stone lintel, 28 feet across. It weighs 120 tons. The Temple of Jupiter at Baalbek is later, but it is staggering to find in the retaining wall three great blocks of stone, each weighing about 700 tons. In a quarry nearby is a partially cut block that would have weighed a thousand tons. As our thoughts go back to the Colossus of Rhodes, the Pharos Lighthouse, the Hanging Gardens, the Ziggurats, the Steppe Pyramid, or even in our own land to Stonehenge, we have no reason to suppose that early man was afraid to tackle great tasks. Unquote. Well, there's much more, including an interesting comment that death and aging, their causes, are still very little known. They are deformities brought in by man's fall. But he says it is difficult to explain them. Well, on to another book. While I was in... uh, Florida this past weekend in Orlando and then in Tampa, I had the pleasure of seeing uh, two of you, uh, Dr. Bill Houston and Ruthann Houston, and I was happy to see that uh, Dr. Hewson is recovering from his very serious accident at the hands of an incompetent. While I was there, they gave me a book, The Adventures of the Chevalier de La Salle and His Companions, by John S. C. Abbott. Now, the S. C. stands for Stevens Cabot, John Stevens Cabot Abbott. This is very interesting, because this was one of a series of books which... Schoolboys read earlier in this century and in uh, backward areas such as I grew up in uh, part of the time, they were still using them on the uh, classroom bookshelves. These books are totally Christian. More biblical in their emphasis than uh, many of our Christian books today, if not virtually all of them. The man who wrote this book, John Abbott, was one of the greatest of the American historians. He was our great expert and, some would say, the greatest expert on Napoleon and the French Revolution. I know that Otto, in uh, doing his uh, research for his book on Robespierre, found one of the books by Abbott very valuable. They are, by the way, rather rare now. Well, Abbott's dates, I think, were something like 1805 to 1877, 1877. About 22 years ago, incidentally, in talking to a Stanford professor, I asked him uh, who was the greatest authority on Napoleon. And he said, uh, John Abbott, but nobody wants to use him anymore. One can understand why, given the character and the faith of the man. Abbott, by the way, was... uh, perhaps the friendliest uh, non-French biographer of Napoleon. His four-volume Life of Napoleon is a classic. Perhaps at some points he does err, but not as much as others. One of the quotations, by the way, that uh, Abbott has in his four-volume Study of Napoleon is a delightful one. It was uh, Napoleon commenting on all the stories that were being published about him and his supposedly endless uh, extramarital affairs. And of course, uh, when a man becomes famous, almost everyone who wants to gain a little cheap fame claims to have slept with so and so. And this was no less true of Napoleon. At any rate, Napoleon, reading some of the accounts of his sexual life as put out by the English, expressed amazement. And he uh, commented that if he indeed had been in and out of all these bedrooms and spent as much time chasing girls as the English say he was, he could never have waged the war as he did and... Created the empire that he did. Well, to get back to this book on the uh, Salle, uh, one of the interesting things, by the way, is that uh, as he deals with La Salle, the Chevalier de La Salle, Abbott uh, paints a remarkably moving picture of the. Uh, monks, the Jesuits, who were there working as a part of the French mission. Those who think that uh, our past was only bigotry have but to read Abbott and define the high respect with which he held those dedicated missionaries. Moreover, Abbott is remarkably good in dealing with the Indians. He points out their savagery, their cannibalism, their torture, but he also points out how, given those limitations, they were also sometimes surprisingly uh, kindly and receptive. Um, He... On the other hand, cites things like this that uh, I can vouch for, having seen some of the last of this in my time. He says, and I quote, All who could afford it, speaking of the Indians, had several wives. They were as unfeeling as brutes. If a wife displeased her lord and master, he would mercilessly cut off her nose and with apparently as little concern as a dog fancier trims the ears of a terrier. United with these execrable traits of character, there were others to which we have already alluded, which were alluring. And then he goes on to speak of some of the uh, work of the missionaries among them. Now, this matter of cutting off a wife's nose was quite uh, commonplace among most Indian tribes. It was the usual punishment for adultery. The um, protuberant part of the nose was just sliced off. This guaranteed that the wife would have trouble having an affair after that because it made her definitely unattractive. I can vouch for that. However, it sometimes was a problem to the man because he didn't enjoy <laughs> looking at her either. <laughs> he also deals with the character of some of the Frenchmen in de La Salle's party very realistically. Uh, some of them uh, deserted La Salle and chose to live among the Indians. as one of them. And a year later, as they encountered them again, these men had become totally Indian. They had forgotten all that they had known as civilized people. La Salle himself was a remarkable man, an explorer, a commander of men, and a very genuine Christian. I quote, uh, this shortly before his death at the hands of some of his own men. Father Douay gave the following account. All the way, LaSalle conversed with me of matters of piety, grace, and predestination. He expatiated upon all his obligations to God for having saved him from so many dangers during the last twenty years that he had traversed America. He seemed to me to be peculiarly penetrated with a grateful sense of God's kindness to him. Much more in this book—a Delightful One. I commend... Anything by John S. C. Abbott to your attention. Well, now on to something else. Two days ago, when I was elsewhere in California and Dorothy was with me, we made our usual stop, as much as time permitted, to a bookstore. In fact, this time we were able to take time to go to two. And in one where I picked up a number of uh, very fine books, I secured uh, the second volume of Northwestern Christian Magazine. This was published in Cincinnati in 1856. At that time, you must realize, Ohio and Illinois were the Northwest. The uh, book is a delight. The dates are 1855 and 1856 of the um, issues of the Northwest Christian magazine. The writing is surprisingly good and lively, very blunt. You have abolitionists and anti-abolitionists, northerners and southerners, Uh, speaking their mind very plainly, very bluntly, sometimes quite angrily. You have uh, a man like Frederick Douglass, the black abolitionist leader, writing also. You have Horace Mann with uh, something of an address to teachers. A great deal of interest with this uh, from... uh, 1856, December the 28th, from Virginia, an article entitled The Modern Abomination of Free Schools. I won't read the first part where the writer uh, expresses uh, his... uh, Disgust at the fact of the way the word free is being used so that he has gotten to hating everything with the prefix free, he says, because uh, free will, free thinking, free love, free wives, every kind of uh, evil is called free. Well... Then he goes on to say, and I'll read this part at some length because it gives you an idea of the very blunt, open, and lively thinking of the day. I quote, But the worst of these abominations, because when once installed it becomes a hotbed propagator of all, is the modern system of free schools. We forgot who it is that has charged and proved that the New England system of free schools has been the cause and prolific source of all the legions of horrible infidelities and treasons that has turned her cities into Sodom's and Gomorrahs, and her fair land into the common nestling place of howling Bedlamites. We abominate the system because the schools are free and because they make that which ought to be the reward of toil an earnest, ardent, and almost superhuman individual effort, cheap, commonplace, prizeless, and uninviting. As there is no royal road to learning, so there ought to be no mob road to learning. A little learning is a dangerous thing to the individual, to society, to learning itself, to all conservatism of thought, and all stability in general affairs. The sole function of the free schools is to supply that little learning, and thus it is charged to the brim with incendiarisms, heresies, and all the explosive elements which uproot and rend and desolate society. Free schools are only another name for government schools and both natural and revealed law make it the duty of the parent to educate his children and not the duty of government. It is as much the business of the father to instruct the mind of the child as to fill its belly, and it is no more the duty of government to furnish free education for children than free soap, free buttermilk, or free bonny clabber no more its duty to furnish governesses and pedagogues than grannies, wet nurses, and baby-jumpers. It is the duty of parents to support and nurture their children, and if the task is a burthen to them, they are apt to forego the having of children at all, which is much better than having children to be bundled off upon the cold charities of the public for nurture and instruction." It is alike their duty to educate their children in the rudiments of knowledge, and if they feel themselves unequal to the burden, in this case, too, they will be apt to forego the having of children. This responsibility of parents for their children is the wellspring of parental happiness, and every effort to divest them of it dries up home affections, undermines the institution of the family, fills society with reprobate ruffians, and approximates the nature of the human species to that of the brutal and callous crocodile, which deposits its eggs upon the sand, leaves them to be hatched by the sun, and the brood to be reared by the tender mercies of the elements. Care and anxiety are the sources of affection, and as you divest parents of these for their children, you cut the tie which God has bound together the home circle. It is the duty of the parent to nurture and instruct his children, and it is the duty of the government to make the parent do this as much for the children as the children's good. When you destroy the recollections of the child, the youth, or the man, for mother and for father, upon what awful abyss of licentiousness and crime do you not launch him? Shall the state in the name of benevolence or any other name under heaven with iron grasp tear the infant from home, father and mother, without incurring the vengeance of outraged nature? Whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Our Virginia fathers established the best system of government, which ever the wit of man conceived and every departure from their system has involved us in the labyrinth of troubles. They handed down to us three institutions as distinct as that of the Godhead and each alike essential to the well-being of society. They hedged each of these institutions around with strong barriers to prevent their mutual interference or entanglement And in every instance in which modern reform has leveled one of these barriers, have we had deep and lasting reason to repent the vandal impiety and folly. These institutions are, first, the federal government, charged with the entire and exclusive management of national affairs. Two, the state government, charged with the entire and exclusive control of municipal affairs. Third, the domestic or plantation government, charged with the entire and exclusive management of domestic affairs. These three institutions, the Confederation, the State, and the Family, our fathers planted as distinct, independent, sovereign, and sacred institutions. In proportion, as we have restricted each within its sphere at the South, have we enjoyed the blessings of peace, quiet, stability, and conservatism. To the respect we have paid them at the South do we owe all these favorable conditions in our society which have distinguished our lot from that of the afflicted, beleaguered, and bedeviled North, to the fact that the North have not appreciated or upheld the family institution but allow the state to invade it with free schools, anti-liquor laws, incorporated factories, and a thousand and one associations of male and female for a thousand and one specious and absurd purposes are attributable to all the social disorganization which have blighted as a moral Sirocco Sirocco every square mile of its surface. Terrible are the ravages, and ruthless the inroads committed upon the family by the improvements and empiricisms of the northern states. Children look elsewhere than to their parents for the right of instruction and sustain to them but the animal relations of the pup to the bitch that has weaned them. The trader takes off the boy to be reared by the taskmaster mechanic or to become an apprentice. The factory entices the girl from a genial and virtuous home to become a stranger, a hireling, a sinner, and an outcast. Who can test what the end of these things shall be? We trust the South will fortify the family with ramparts tenfold thicker than the walls of Sevastopol." Now, if you think that's strong language, you should uh, read what some of the Northerners had to say. (laughs) One thing, all the writers pro and con were never mealy-mouthed. They were blunt, plain-spoken, hard-hitting Christians. Um, So here you have the statement of a southern slave owner. Uh, At least he's a little more gentlemanly than some of the northerners when they write, but all of them write with the same strong, blunt language. A very thoroughly uh, interesting volume. Well, on to something else. A book I picked up just uh, this month by Yigael Y-I-G-A-E-L Yadin Y-A-D-I-N, published 1985 by Random House in New York. The Temple Scroll, The Hidden Law of the Dead Sea Sect, published at $24.95. The author is, by the way, a very, uh, or was, a very remarkable man. He uh, was a general at the age of 32 in Israel and was at that age a, chief of staff of the Israeli army. At the same time, he was a scholar, an archaeologist. His works were important. He held the chair in archaeology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And he was one of the foremost international scholars in the field of the Dead Sea Scroll research. For a while, he served in Israel's Parliament. He died last year, 1984, May, at the age of 67, just after he finished this book. The book is of interest because this is a Dead Sea scroll of which we have previously heard nothing, a scroll about temple, uh, life and by that is meant the life of holiness. The scroll has a great deal of interesting material on the Old Testament law, also, the revisions of the law as the uh, Essenes. Uh, Uh, revised the Bible. Uh, That's the only way to describe it. Moreover, what comes out is this, that some of the statements of our Lord were against the people of the Dead Sea colony of whom many lived elsewhere, including a sizable colony of them in Jerusalem. It was this group of uh, Jewish believers who said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. So our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount quotes that and then uh, tears it to shreds as a falsification of Scripture, which indeed it was, as other things that the Temple Scroll Uh, contains, also were. Uh, As a result, the book has interest for biblical scholars in uh, calling attention to uh, some of these things. Well, one of the interesting aspects of this is the pietism of the Essenes. The Essenes were ancient pietists who carried their piety to weird extremes of holiness. One of the um, weirdest aspects of it was that uh, their obedience to the Sabbath became so extreme and so rigid that they felt it was a violation of the Sabbath to go to uh, the toilet for any toilet function on the Sabbath. So they had to uh, prepare themselves ahead of time to avoid that necessary call of nature. And since the uh, Hebrew Sabbath, which was observed uh, off and on by Christendom, including by the Puritans in this country, It was from Saturday night sundown to sunup on Monday, going by our calendar. So it was actually a day and a half. This meant a very considerable self-discipline. But this is the way they maintained their holiness. You were polluted, and you were a. fearfully uh, depraved creature if you didn't maintain this kind of a schedule. But this is not all. It was held that any day of the week it was wrong to use a privy in the holy city, in Jerusalem. As a result, they tended to live in one part of the city. They had a small gate which was known as the Dung Gate, D-U-N-G which they would use to run out of the gates into the countryside because under no circumstances any day of the week could the natural functions be performed within the temple city, Jerusalem. Well, this is the kind of uh, insanity that is often marked the life of piety and pietism. The Maccabeans uh, earlier had for a time been guilty of the same sort of thing. They felt it was wrong to fight on the Sabbath, which made them a very easy target for the enemy to strike at on the Sabbath. Our Lord spoke about this also when he ridiculed any observance of the Sabbath that neglected works of necessity. That works of necessity can be performed on the Sabbath. And yet, in spite of our Lord's words, you've had the same kind of stupidity that the Maccabeans showed in other fields, however, manifested over and over again during the centuries by Christians. Uh, None, to my knowledge, uh, hopefully, and never as bad as that practiced by the Essenes. But when people start inventing their own rules, their own laws to supplement God's word, they try to be holier than God, and the result is insane. Now on to a very different um, subject. George Rude, R-U-D-E, Europe in the Eighteenth Century, Aristocracy and the Bourgeois Challenge. This was first published in 1972, but has just been reprinted in 1985 by the Harvard University Press. It's an interesting account of the development of Europe in the 18th century, some of the uh, sidelights that I think are of interest. For example, in England, the census, when it was first uh, proposed, in 1753 was intensely and successfully opposed by members of Parliament. As Thomas Thornton uh, declared in Parliament to the Commons, I quote, As to myself, I hold the project to be totally subversive of the last remains of English liberty, and therefore, though it should pass into law, I should think myself under the highest of all obligations to oppose its execution." These uh, objections uh, were finally overcome, and the regular census appeared in both France and Britain in 1801, in Prussia in 1810, in Holland and Belgium in 1829, Sweden and Norway in 1840, Italy in 1861 and Russia in 1867. It's interesting to think of the reasons for this opposition. First of of course, there was the background of biblical faith, the prohibition of a census in the Old Testament, because their trust was not to be in numbers but in God. Then, second, there was the very strong recognition that when a state began collecting data on its people, it could also collect enough data to control them, to create files on them, and to hold them, as it were, in its power. And, of course, This increasingly is the direction that uh, the federal government, through the census and the IRS and other means, is taking. Now, on to still another thing. Priscilla Robertson, some years ago, wrote an interesting book, on, and this is the title, Revolutions of 1848. Priscilla Robertson is the daughter of a prominent American historian of some years ago, Preserved Smith, an old-fashioned Puritan name. Uh, Priscilla Robertson's book was published in eighteen in nineteen fifty-two, and it was last reprinted, to my knowledge, in nineteen sixty. There are a great many interesting facts in it, as this book and also Rude's book make clear. The churches, Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox, were in those days controlled by the state, radically controlled. This had been the trend for a few centuries before the Reformation. During the Reformation there was a limited amount of freedom, and this freedom was in both Catholic and Protestant circles. But very quickly the control was reestablished to frightening degrees. To give you an idea how far extensive this kind of control was, very few things have had a more strict adherence in the Catholic Church, for example, than the inviolability of the confessional. However, the first half of the last century in the Austrian Empire, the police, the evidence is showing, required the Jesuit confessors to reveal to them anything in the confessional that might have to do with a political order. And this was their price for the privilege of operating in the country, a Catholic country. They had been expelled by the Emperor Joseph and recalled by the Emperor Francis, and they were ready to cooperate for that reason. It was the revolutionary groups of the first half of the last century who first talked about the right to work. And, of course, every attempt to apply it was absurd. They could not create jobs. And when they provided make-do work, all it did was to bankrupt the state. During this era, of course, the world in Europe changed its orientation from an emphasis on religion and dynasty, loyalty to a ruling house, to nationalism, and the results were very explosive for society. One of the things, too, that comes through in this book, and not because Priscilla Robertson is unfriendly to the revolutionaries, but because as a historian, she gives us a fair amount of the data. When they triumphed, they were very quick to go into two things, unrealistic uh, reforms that did not have a ghost of a chance of success because they were attempting by their fiat word to say we're going to remake the country without any regard for economic and human facts. And the other is their absurdities. In France, when the revolutionaries gained power, they spent time debating on how they should be dressed, what they should wear to mark themselves as the revolutionary leaders and members of the Convention. Amazing their blindness and how easily, as a result, they were overthrown. Another interesting fact is that uh, in some areas It was dangerous to wear a beard. They were a sign of democratic sympathies in Western Europe. It meant you did not like the old tyranny, and so it could be dangerous to go around with a beard. The account is also interesting on... uh, The hypocrisies of the day, how the English could be outraged by what went on in the mistreatment of peasants and minorities in continental Europe or in the Austrian Empire, and totally unmindful of what they were doing to the Irish. A delightful book in many respects and uh, a vivid account of the insanities of modern man. Well, there's much more here to uh, deal with, but let me briefly call attention to an older book by S.P. Breckinridge, Legal Tender, a study in English and American Monetary Theory. It was first published in 1903 and reprinted by Greenwood in 1969. The subject is of interest because when this country was established, as I have called attention to on other occasions, the word sovereignty was left out of the Constitution. They had just fought a war against a sovereign, They believe that sovereignty is an attribute of God alone because the word sovereign or lord means the one who is the ruler, lord over one. The issue of sovereignty first arose in this country in the courts, beginning fairly early with Marshall, the control of money. Here the claim was that just as in antiquity and in the Middle Ages and in Europe until that time, it was the right of the sovereign, of the monarch, to make money, to recall it, to do as he pleased with it. So, too, Marshall and others began to say, it is the power of the federal government as the new sovereign, the substitute for King George III, to determine what is money. We have paid a heavy price for that. This book, by the way, is very good in dealing with... um, the English scene, as well, I w- was happy to see some home truths told about Henry the Seventh, the father of Henry the as well as Henry the of Henry the Seventh. Uh, it is written, and I quote at the end of Henry seventh's reign, the condition of the money of the country was such that resort was had to the use of private tokens to supply the lack in the circulating medium the cupidity and miserliness of the king were almost boundless, so that the administration of justice was abused, vigorous prosecutions were carried on, and excessive fines imposed to fill his coffers. Yet the abuse of his coinage power for the sake of gain was not resorted to. That remained for his spendthrift son." human sovereigns have over the centuries worked to control and to destroy money. So there's nothing new here. Then, well, our time is getting short. Just a few short items. In uh, the Daily News Digest for... August 21, 1985, this item, and I quote, Chicago Transit Authority considering bulletproof driver's compartments for their buses and a separate mass transit police force to stem the crime wave, unquote. So this is the reality concerning a Christless country. Now, this from a Canadian magazine entitled Reformed Perspective, issue of April 1985. I've been meaning for some time to call to your attention because it deals with something I touched on at some length last year, and some people were cynical about it, but this keeps turning up. And just as regularly denounced as a fraud. But it is true. I quote News about a particularly cynical business practice emerged in Austria, where abortions became legal in 1973. Since approximately 70,000 abortions take place there annually, hospitals have many fetuses and embryos available. A journalist for the Viennese magazine, Icarus, reportedly began to investigate the potential trade in embryos by posing as a representative of a French cosmetics firm. From two employees of the mortuary in a Viennese hospital, he found out that he could buy embryos for $20 each. The magazine claimed that such human remains are being used in the manufacture of rejuvenating facial creams. According to Austrian law, aborted fetuses must be either buried or cremated. However, the magazine Icarus states that trading in embryos is a common occurrence in several Eastern European countries and that the byproduct of death has become an agent to remove feminine wrinkles. So, there it is again. Well, our time is just about up. I've enjoyed this session with you. I do enjoy sharing my reading and sometimes my random reflections with you, and I'm grateful to you for listening in. Thank you and God bless you.